My name is Michael Burgess. I am the DP of The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, and this is The Go Creative Show. Hello and welcome to The Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we speak with Michael Burgess, the director of photography of The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. Michael, welcome to the show. It's very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I am really excited to talk to you about this. Uh, it's probably my favorite Conjuring. I don't know. It's, I mean, the first one, obviously, wow. you know, it, it, it lives in infamy. But I don't know. This one just feels really fresh. I love the cinematography. I think it just, it looks really just clean and crisp and nice. And I love all the, mov- uh, the movement and the momentum in it. Like, I, I'm a fan. So I can't wait to talk to you about it. But before we get there... Uh, I just want to mention MZ Education for Creatives. Uh, They are sponsoring this episode, and I love MZ. We'll be talking more about them later in the episode. Of course, follow us on your favorite podcast app, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. So, Michael, yes. Now, obviously, like I said, The First Conjuring is like one of those movies that just, it's going to be around forever. Horror movies, I think, really do that. The genre kind of wants those staple milestone movies. But I loved this one a lot. I really, really did. Um, It must be fun to become part of such a successful franchise like this. It it is, actually. It's a pretty cool thing to be a part of. I was lucky enough to get involved uh, on the second one. I was actually uh, the B-camera operator and uh, shot the second unit on The Conjuring 2. Uh, so I kind of knew the language and knew how James worked and, and, you know, so I tried to use some of that, uh, with obviously fresh eyes from Shavs, uh, on Conjuring 3 uh, with doing something, uh, of more of a vision from Shavs, but keeping some of the same style and visual, uh, similarities as, you know, all the other, uh, Conjurings and spinoffs. So like when you're talking about those similarities, Name a couple. Like when you go into this and you realize it's going to be a different director, it's part of the same universe, but there's kind of a freshness and a newness to it so many years out. What are some of the things that you said we absolutely need to at least try to keep these elements? Uh, You know, I think a lot of it has to do with the way that you move the camera and uh, especially in scare scenes or uh, uh, these scenes where you're trying to suck the audience into these environments. And I think the way that you move the camera really helps to heighten those moments, uh, whether it's, it's, it's to, to show something or to actually suck the audience in to make them feel like they're, like they're there. Mm-hmm. And I think that that visual uh, similarity goes throughout the movies. How do you do that? If you're faced with a scene, you know, and you know you need to suck the audiences in, as we're saying, what, what are some of the techniques you use? Well, I think a big one is, is say you have uh, a character traveling through a space uh, and they're hearing noises and it's dark and, 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 and they're trying to see something or run from something. Uh, you, you, you're right there with them with the camera. You're kind of close and wide. So you're seeing their faces, their reaction, but you're also seeing the space around them. And it, it, that just, it, it opens up for the audience. Like, what is over there or what is over there? You know, where is this, this, the demon or, you know, whatever it is that's haunting them. Uh, So shooting wide and close uh, opens the space up and makes you feel like you're right there with them. You're close up. You can feel the reaction. So I think the proximity between camera and character, uh, you feel that as, as the audience. 
can also really get all their facial expressions. I mean, yes, you can do that on a telephoto lens too, but there's something really cool about that look of being immersed really close to somebody in a wide angle lens. I just love that look. Yeah, I, I do too. And, and again, like you said, you, you can get great reactions from long lenses, but the, the long lens, it, 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 it takes away the depth of field. So it really isolates the character where with the wider lens is a little more wider depth of field. You can see around them. You know, so you're as the audience, you're looking at the reactions and you're looking around them to see what's out there. Yeah, that's an interesting point, because you do have to you have to always be looking around the character, too, at what could potentially be the threat, like what's what monster is going to come out in and get them. So you do have to be able to see enough around the uh, the talent to really pull you in. So are you thinking about things like maybe having the environment be more in focus? than you would for just a simple dialogue scene. Are those types of things going through your mind? Absolutely, absolutely. I think everything from lens choice to focus choice to lighting, uh, what I'm trying to do is guide, gently guide the audience to the story and what we want them to be looking at. Tell me about the camera and lens package you ended up choosing for The Conjuring and why. Uh, For this particular uh, film, we chose uh, Alexa SXTs. Hmm. Uh, with Panavision Primos and P-Vintage lenses, combining the two. Uh, I chose the the Alexa. Um, one, I love it. I think it's a fantastic camera. Uh, I think yeah. it's a well-rounded camera. It's very versatile, and um, I really love the overall image in the end. It's got a great roundness to the image. Um, also, you know, uh, those were also used uh, in the previous uh, movies. So to keep along with the visual language, kind of keep it similar and in the same world. Uh, I maintained that. Uh, I chose those lenses. Uh, again, I, I just love the feel and look of them. And I went between the Primos and the P-Vintages just for stop, because we did a lot of stuff with like lighting only candlelight, you know, or just very little low light levels. So I needed the stop to help me get there without having to pump too much light in the, in the set. We wanted the environments to feel dark so the characters are really feel emerged in what's happening. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking right now at that Alexa X, SXT. I don't hear a lot of people talk about that one. You hear a lot of the minis, you hear a lot of the mini LFs. The camera body looks pretty big. Uh, I'm curious, like it's how- a, It's a what, decent what, size. Yeah, like what made you choose? Well, m- what I'm, most of the time people are always saying they want those mini ones because they're lightweight, you can throw them on a gimbal, it's easy, blah, blah, blah. What drew you to this particular camera? Well, well. To be fair, we also we also carried a mini as well. So okay. we would carry two SXTs and a mini. And anytime it wasn't on like a steady cam or uh, some of the handheld stuff in tight spaces and stuff, we would do that on the mini. And then everything else, we do that on the SXTs. Yeah. And it, for me, it just has to go with. I feel the SXTs compared to the minis, they uh, you get a little more light with them. In other words. The, the minis to me are going to be a little naturally darker and a little bit less, I feel like, quality uh, than the SXTs. So I try to stick with those as much as possible. But both cameras produce beautiful images, seamlessly blended into the movie. So that's why I like having them both. Yeah, you I mean you would never know that you're that you're mixing camera bodies in this in this no, at all. They're both fantastic cameras that they're yeah, you can't you can't tell. So you had the two SXTs on set. Were you running them simultaneously? We did. We did a lot of uh, two cameras. 
um, for multiple reasons. Uh, one, we, we always had our kind of like a camera, like planned out shot that, you know, Shavs would, would set up with a BJ, the operator, and we would create a shot, whatever that was. But almost every other time we would have another camera running, just picking off stuff. Cause you, you never know what you're going to get. And I think sometimes that stuff's gold, whether it's mm. a reaction from this angle that looks fantastic or he kind of comes around the light that we weren't thinking and it just, it just hits. And so it's, I think it's always nice for uh, the director to have those options in the editing room. So what is your, I guess, what is your um, workflow for having those two cameras on at the same time? And how does that affect your lighting um, in these scenes? Because a lot of times people set up their lighting for one camera and then when you try to do a reversal or a cross shot, everything has to change. Are you kind of lighting sort of 360 when you're doing a two camera approach like this? Uh, not always, not always. Uh, sometimes just because the shot itself lends, it lends me to have to, to light 360, but I try to light per the shot, uh, or in, in, the, in a lot of these cases, light the environment. And, uh, I just, I tell the B camera operator, be kind to try to find something that there's some nice lighting. And obviously <laughs> yeah. I'm watching, I got, you know, I got my two monitors, which is why I don't I don't generally operate uh, on multiple camera shoots because um, I like to keep an eye on all the shots. Yeah, and I'm so I'm at my monitor. I got I got headphones on where I'm communicating with the crew uh, during the shot, before and after the shot. Um, so I, I, I'm watching on the monitor, and I'll say, "Hey, can you please, you know, come around a little bit, or you know, uh, just little stuff like that." But I try to get hire people that I trust. Yeah, well, you uh, must. I mean, that that trust has to be there because they're essentially your, they're, well, you're your eyes, but they're also your eyes. I mean, they're out no, there they're trying also, to get you're shots. Right. You're right. They're also my eyes. So you got to you got to trust them. Um, oh, I'm sorry. What was it? Well, was do, that last do you question? do you enjoy operating? Is that something you like oh, to do? Oh. Uh, you know what? I did. I I operated for many years uh, and I loved it, uh, which is why I actually operated my first feature film as a as a DP. And I will, you know, if there's multiple cameras going on, sometimes I'll do it. If we need in a pinch, we need an extra, I'll get out there and operate. Um, but I find at, after the first one, it, it was kind of a lot of work to do that and maintain multiple cameras and lighting and getting ahead with shooting that quickly. So I just, I, I kind of hung the hat up and, and decided to, it's just easier for me to maintain the team and control the team from, from, you know, my monitors. And let, let the pros do the work. Yeah, exactly. I think, I mean, operating certainly, I think, could be really fun. And there are people that do it masterfully while also directing photography. But it just seems like having an operator, building that communication and really looking at the monitors more than, you know, you know, more than through the camera's iris or something. It just, I don't know, it feels like that's a more natural way to handle something like a feature film, a big project like this. Yeah, for me it is. And like you said, a lot of people do it very well. Um, I I just feel that if if I'm operating, I'm focused too much on simply operating each specific shot. Where I'm I'm someone who likes to think about you know what what's coming up next. I, I like to be prepared for what's happening next, what's happening in the moment. I like watching both monitors. And uh, in, 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 in I'm looking for details that I just I couldn't I couldn't do. I couldn't focus on if I was focusing on operating as well. So I, I just feel I'm better for the movie if I'm not operating and shooting at the same time. Now, you mentioned that you were B camera 
operator on Conjuring 2. Did I hear that right? I was. So is that a normal trajectory for cinematographers? Like, do do you see that often where you start as a B cam operator or a second unit operator and then kind of work your way up to DP? Uh, I don't think there's a natural transition to becoming a DP. I think everyone has their own route. A lot of people, you know, they always they just start shooting from the beginning and they'll operate and shoot their own stuff. And it goes that way. They're, you know, operating is a fantastic profession itself. And I know a lot of great operators who, who have zero interest in becoming a, in a, a lighting cameraman. Um, so I wouldn't say it's a natural transition, but it, it was a transition for me because I, again, like I said, I would operate the B camera for my father, who's also a cameraman. And that allowed me to go off and shoot the second unit. So I was attached to the movie. I can see how he was lighting things, but I wasn't the A camera operator who was, you know, uh, very important in the, in, you know, working with the actors and the, getting a relationship with the director and all that it is as the B guy was able to kind of go off and shoot the second units while knowing what they were doing at main unit. Cause I was operating. Yeah. And you mentioned your father, um, Don Burgess is your father who is certainly like, I mean, go check his IMDb. <laughs> like that's just he's been it's as simple as that. He's been around. He's worked on, I mean, just so much stuff like you, for, Forrest Gump, Contact, Castaway. It's like, it goes on and on and on. So, I mean, you've had this in your life, in your home, in your family for your entire life. Like, how does that affect you as a cinematographer, as a director of photography, kind of, you know, you, you certainly have a, a great portfolio as well, but your career is sort of at the beginning stages um, how does it affect you as you're trying to rise up in this industry and, and getting feature films and kind of becoming a cinematographer in your own right, having Don Burgess as your dad? Uh, I can tell you it would be a lot more difficult if I let it, but I've always had such a great relationship with him and he's always been like such a great mentor and he's always been a big fan of mine and tried to push me and allow me to do my own creative stuff. Uh, to where it's easy. We, we, we worked together for many years and it was, it was amazing. We had a great working relationship and, uh, it was, it was actually tough when, when we started, when I started doing my own stuff without him. Um, but he, Why? for me, it's, it's, uh, again, cause we spent a lot of time. We would travel together and live together and work together. And then all of a sudden now we're, you know, he's in London and, uh, I'm about to go to Boston and, you know, I'll see him, you know, not very much this year. But, you know, as far as uh, we're both competitive, so, you know, I, I got to beat him out. There's that's that's the bottom line. <laughs> I love that's that. The, uh, you know, and uh, especially for, you know, Conjuring 3, he shot Conjuring 2. So I felt very it was, I thought it was quite fun that, all right, I'm shooting Conjuring 3. I got to one up him. I got to I got to make it look better. It's got to be a better movie. And now, am I going to be the center of a rift saying that Conjuring 3 might be my favorite? <laughs> no, stop it. So we've got a question here from Christopher Sousa 59 on Instagram asking if anamorphic was an option during pre-production. Did you consider that at all? Uh, you know, that's a, that's a great question because anamorphic was definitely uh, talked about heavily with the director, Michael Shavs. Shavs uh, is a big, loves anamorphic, and I, I think they're beautiful lenses. So we did some significant testing uh, of anamorphic lenses. And uh, I think in the end, we just, again, going back to it kind of staying with the visual style of the rest of the Conjuring universe, 
we decided to shoot spherical. If if you weren't worried about staying within that cinematic universe, do you think you would have made that choice, or would you would have would you have stayed spherical? Uh, I don't know. I don't know that. I do know that we both really like the look of anamorphic, uh, but I think in the end we just thought that spherical was better for the movie in the sense of we're really moving the camera a lot and it's yep. just coming up close on the actors. You know, those are just things that spherical lenses are better for. Yeah, and opinion. I wonder if there's something to spherical for horror specifically because it might give you the ability to move around a little bit differently. Yeah, I think I think you're right. And I think that, again, to putting the audience in the perspective of the characters, I think spherical lenses are more true to how we see things. Uh, just because of the way that the focus is and, and uh, you know, I feel like anamorphic lenses are beautiful with that fall off, but I just don't think that's natural to the human eye as much as spherical lenses. Yeah. I want to talk about lighting for a little bit and then some specific scenes uh, in the film. I haven't done anything that really needed to be dark and scary ever before. So I have like no experience in this kind of horror, scary thriller world. Um, but I imagine that you have to pay really close attention to being dark, being scary, being creepy, but you there's got to be a line there because if it's too dark, you, there's nothing to look at. And if it's too bright, it doesn't have that fear factor. So can you talk to me about the way that you approached The Conjuring 3 and maybe just the genre of horror and thriller in your lighting? Uh, yes, and I think exactly what you said. It's a fine line between, okay, that's just too dark. I have nothing to look at. Uh, you always want the audience member to have something like a point of rest on the image to, for the audience to look. And again, I do that. Uh, I try to gently guide the audience to look certain places on the image by something in the screen is, is, is a little bit brighter and everything else is dark. Okay. The, you're going to go to that and then you're going to look into the darkness and see like that. So you do try to, you do try to create that fine line of, is it too dark? And is it not too dark? And, I start off with a, a, a certain LUT that we that we put onto these uh, into the camera, um, in, into um, uh, we start. This is started at Photochem with my uh, DI colors, Griff, and it is. I make it very uh, a very dark and contrasty LUT. So when I'm lighting, it it on my monitors it takes the image real down low, and I'm and it looks like like there's not no lights on. So it. it it makes me light a little bit more than than I think I need to, which 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 is protecting me, protecting the darkness. So when I go back in the DI, oh, okay, there's actually more information there than I thought. Mm. Uh, so that just protects me to completely having nothing on the image. Because uh, mm -hmm. as you can see, we work with some pretty low light levels. Definitely. Like, is there a particular scene or shot that you really had to push that darkness? Did you get any resistance at all ever throughout the entire film? Uh, no, no. I think uh, Chaz would sometimes, he, Chaz loved the darkness. Uh, he really wanted to make it a gritty, scary movie. And uh, that was, you know, done through mood. And he was pushing for darkness and I loved it. Uh, there's the end sequence when they're running through the tunnels underneath and, you know, literally all there was was a flashlight. That's, that was it. There was no other lighting really? uh, for some of that. 
And, you know, the, the poor, you know, camera crew and, and my, the operators and the director are running through this very dark space. They're running into stuff. They're bumping things. They're like, <laughs> they're like, Birch, give me some light here. I can't see anything. Uh, I was like, use the flashlight, use the flashlight. So that, you know, that was, that was it. It was one little flashlight lighting the wow. you know, entire, you know, 3000 square feet of, you know, tunnel space. <laughs> Where were you shooting that? Uh, that was, we built that on stage in Atlanta. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. I mean that I, you certainly see flashlight scenes in films, but you always assume that there's another light source because how could it just be flashlight? It's kind of, it's kind of interesting to see that you, you just went for it. Yeah. 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 Just, that's it. That was it. Chavs was, and you know, Sh- uh, Michael Chavs was a big proponent that he re- that's, that's what he wanted. That was his vision. So we went with, it was beautiful. We went with it. I love that. I, there, there's a few specific scenes that I want to talk about, and certainly camera tips, uh, lighting, anything you want to bring into the kind of making and development of these scenes would be great. But I'd love to start with this waterbed scene, which is really the thing that when you talk to anybody and when you read all the reviews and you kind of look around online, there's something about this waterbed scene that is just chilling people to the core. And First of all, I'd love to know what you what you thought of this scene on paper. And did you imagine that it was going to kind of become one of those scenes that is synonymous with certainly this film and just horror in general? Uh, I mean, I don't think you're ever thinking that while you're shooting it. I think you're just trying to, like, make it happen and make it work. Yeah, because, uh, you know, that that was it's it pre- it's very tricky. Um, that sequence of, you know, how do you get a guy in a water in, in a waterbed? OK, obviously. You can't. Uh, so again, how do you shoot that? How do you shoot the hand coming up and grabbing the kid? How do you shoot the 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 silhouette of his hand uh, mirroring the you know the entity underneath him? Uh, so a lot of these things we had to be figured out in pre production, obviously. And I thought Shavs did a great job of coming up with some ideas of how to do this and how he wanted to shoot it. And it is one of those things where actually when it was all done. We were watching it. And I was like, "Man, that is terrifying," and I think it's it's terrifying because it's a, the child. You know, yeah. you have a, a child, uh, and to me, that just that just heightens it tremendously. Like, I, I think it would be scary if it was an adult, but the fact that it's a child, I think, takes it to a whole new level. And I thought uh, we did a, a great job of crafting it as far as like easing into each different level of how much we see him. And then all of a sudden, boom, the hand comes up out of the water, spraying everywhere. And, uh, yeah, I think the uh, effects team, visual effects team, special effects team, did a great job of making that all kind of come to life. Um, But it was fun to – they cut a hole in the bed. There's – the effects team built a a little hole to where the guy can stick his hand up through it and built this water gauge so the water would spurt out. You know, uh, it, I thought it was just very clever that the way everyone made that all happen. And again, that that was something that we had many meetings uh, in pre-production of, ha- of how to do it. And of course, working with Julian Hilliard, the the child actor there, like, I mean, he just delivers that scene. So he's such a great actor anyway. What was it like working with him? Uh, he is a fantastic spirit and uh, very nice kid. I, I think there's something he's very like, sweet and gentle which makes you feel for him even more like that this is happening to him and then he shafts put him in those glasses and you're like oh god that's just 
breaks your heart. So it's uh, he's great. He was wonderful to work with and uh, very spirited and fun and loved every minute of what he was doing. He can also be incredibly evil too. Wow. He delivered <laughs> yes. in that opening exorcism scene. And I want to I want to talk about that scene as well. But just one more thing about the the waterbed, because I think when I was watching it, like what what I think makes it feel so I don't know there's, what I think makes it feel so scary is there's something about a waterbed in its lack of stability that makes you incredibly vulnerable. I mean, showers are a vulnerable moment. Sleeping is a vulnerable moment. But there's something about the the lack of structure of a waterbed in the inconsistency of the movement and not being able to get out of it quickly because you're kind of like sucked into it. There's something about vulnerability in that scene that I think lends to how scary it is. A hundred percent. I think that that's, that's spot on. And, and, and uh, again, just to carry on to what you were just talking about is, is the other great thing is, is how Shavs brought it from like a fun, playful moment of the kid jumping on the waterbed and, you know, he's just kind of gliding through it. And it's just something so easy. And, and then all of a sudden, a complete 180 happens. And I think that's also what's pretty interesting. Let's take a quick break and talk about MZ Education for Creatives. Now, when you go to MZ.com, or even better, gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ, you are faced with hundreds of hours of high-quality, video-based filmmaking education that covers all topics that we need to know about, directing, cinematography, post-production, visual storytelling, and more. So the content is there. The subject matter is there. But what's even more important are the instructors. Because without really good instructors, the information just doesn't, like, get in there. You know what I mean? Like, we are a visual bunch here at Go Creative Show. And if you're anything like me, you need a really good instructor to get that information in. And that's what they have over at MZ. I'm talking about people that are working in the industry at very high levels. Vincent LaFerre, Shane Hurlbut, Philip Bloom. The whole entire ARI Academy is on there. More recently, Tom Cross, the editor of La La Land and Whiplash, did a course. So I'm talking about like high-level people working in the industry, doing great work, and they are teaching you and, and giving you their experiences. Like this is incredible content that really is for us here at the Go Creative Show. Now, yes, you can buy individual courses, but what I suggest is you become an MZ Pro member because then you have access to everything. It's like the Netflix of filmmaking education. So head over to gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ, M-Z-E-D, and check it out for yourself. Of course, when you buy anything there, make sure you use the, pro, uh, the promo code GCS20 for 20% off. So it's all there. GoCreativeShow.com forward slash MZ, M-Z-E-D, MZ, Education for Creatives. Let's talk about that opening exorcism scene. Um, and I mean, we were just talking about Julian Hilliard, the 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 child actor there, um, and his ability to just kind of embody this monstrous, demonic, you know, I guess, character trait <laughs> for him at that moment. Um, is it, uh, I'd like to kind of start with this idea of how are you creating a scary, creepy environment with child actors? Like, I think there, there has to be, there has to be a point where maybe you feel like, can we really go there with a child actor? Is it how far is too far? I mean, did you feel those things working with him? Uh, you know what? It is, it's, it is a very sensitive uh, you got to tread that water carefully. 
uh, and we learned this in Shavs in our last movie, which was The Curse of La Llorona, and, you know, the two main people were also children. Mm-hmm. And that, in, that we put them in some pretty terrifying situations, as we did in this one. Um, first off, we always make sure that the, there's, the parents are there, and they are watching at all times to make sure that their child is never in an uncomfortable position. And I think I think what you do is you just ease you ease into it, uh, and you you always make sure that the child is is comfortable. You you always ask them, and they always make sure they tell you if they're if something's going on that they're not that they're not you know okay with. I think that's the, that's the best. Cause sometimes you got to push them a little bit, you yeah. know, because it's also you know you think about um, watching it is obviously a completely different thing. But when you're there on on this stage in the set. And there's lights everywhere, and there's a ton of people, and there's crews with cameras, and you know, the, the child's not going to get scared. It's 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 more of just making sure that they feel comfortable with everything. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk for a few minutes about the way that you shot and lit that opening exorcism scene. Um, I can only imagine the pressure of knowing that that first few minutes of a horror film, and then specifically a conjuring film, it really has to grip the audience immediately. So there's a lot of pressure on that first scene. So how are you achieving it? Uh, actually, let's, let's, that's interesting is, is the, uh, again, that, that sets the tone for the whole movie, the mood, what the, what the audience should expect. And a big part of that was done in actually the shot that opens the sequence, uh, which is, when the priest comes up and pulls up into the uh, taxi cab mm-hmm. and we do our little homage to the exorcist. And that was, that was always in our, he- our heads. Clearly you can see the similarities, uh, but we wanted it to look obviously different. We wanted it to look a whole nother way. So we kind of set that up with, you can see in the top window in the background that Arnie's silhouetted mm-hmm. faceless. You can't see him. So kind of, you know, you know, demon-esque, you know, he's faceless. We'll just leave it at that. And then, you know, the the priest is is lit by, you know, which is supposed to look like a street light right above. You can see him clearly. And then he's kind of silhouetted by, the, you know, this smoke coming across the fog. And so I think for me, I think that really helped to set the tone of what this priest is walking into. And then, and then it starts with uh, the kid, you know, running into the bathroom and the blood spraying on him. And uh, for that sequence is uh, I knew that there was going to be blood in the scene. So I played a kind of warmer street light uh, coming through the window that I thought would enhance the blood red. Um, and I thought it looked pretty cool. So I thought that was interesting to help, you know, build that up a little bit. And, I also you know, love the frame that's formed by the 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 um the shower curtain. Um, oh yeah! Like you go above, you do kind of a top down shot, and the the shower curtain is held by this border that like kind of puts a frame in a frame in that shot. I loved that. I thought that was really cool. Oh well, that's great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Shavs. I'm very lucky. Shavs is a very visual um, director, and he. He likes to he likes for us to come up with those kind of shots and uh, keep it very visually stimulating. Um, so I think I, I love working with him in that sense. Um, but you know, anyways, that that sequence takes us down into the dining room 
which obviously is the big exorcism scene. And that was, we had to make that visually just boom, just glow. Cause that's, you know, that's, that's the beginning of it all. And yeah, we, we threw around some ideas of what we could do and, and we, we started throwing out, you know, let's have the lights go crazy. Okay. That'll help build to this energy. And so I started playing around with it and I was like, you know what? It's just not singing like it, like it could. So what I ended up doing is I ended up adding a lot more lights than you normally would do. And I did that to, uh, to, to add like this strobing effect of uh, everything going on around him. And it just, the energy of it, I thought just heightened tremendously as I started to add more lights into the flicker effect. Yeah. So is it kind of a mainstay now to have somebody on set that operates these, these kind of, uh, basically operating the lighting through an iPad. I mean, we're seeing that so much now where people are just having all of these practicals all over the place, all of these like hidden LED fixtures and everything's run from an iPad. This seems to be the new normal. It, it, it certainly will be and is for me. Uh, the convenience of having a, a dimmer board operator that can have full control of every light on set, which is kind of how I, 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 I have it. So he can get into every light that's practical and every light that I put up. Uh, he can control from his iPad, from color temperature to to density intensity, to uh, to flickering. I mean, you name it, he has control over it. And I feel it is such a important tool because uh, you know we're we're always down to the it's always down to time. Yeah. And when things aren't going quickly on set, you know everyone kind of looks at the DP for the most part. What's going on? What's taking so long? Ah. So to to be able to have things that can happen that fast allows you to, like what I was just saying, creatively like expand your thoughts on the day. Uh, you know, like I try to be as prepared as possible, but some things just don't. They don't sometimes they just don't work out the way that you plan. So you want to be able to adjust, and I prep in a way to where I have the 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 tools to adjust quickly. Yeah. Um, you know, like being able, like I said, being able to add more lights and more lights to get, you know, the feel uh, a little more, you know, potent. I, I prepared to have the tools ready to do that. And when you have the dimmer board operator, that can just boop, 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 boop. Now that's got two be, seconds. It's it's unbelievable. That's got to be. And those nice. guys are wizards at what they do. It's very impressive. Absolutely. Now, another scene I wanted to talk about is this day to night transition that happens in the woods. It's in the trailer. Um, you know, it's so clearly a scene that everybody thinks is really visually stunning and worthwhile. I loved it watching it in context with the film. It's just really cool. It also seems like a logistical nightmare and a, kind of an incredible challenge to overcome. So can you talk to us about what that scene was, what the challenges were and how you overcame them? Uh, it, it was a little daunting, uh, to attack that. Um, uh, whenever someone asks you to go day to night at night in the woods, you're like, Hmm, interesting. But this concept started early on. Shavs would send me videos of moving lights and he really loved the, the way it looked and felt. And, and so after seeing all these videos, we, we, we really tried to figure out how we can implement that into the story in telling the story. Um, not just having random moving lights around. We wanted to try to incorporate it into the way we told the story. Yeah. 
And uh, we came up with uh, doing it at this part in the movie. It's it's also done in some other parts, but this is obviously the most effective and, and grandest uh, in which we did it. And he goes, right, how can we do this daytime transition to nighttime in the woods? I go, huh. And it's more than just a transition for those that haven't seen it. Like you're going back and forth day to night. Yeah. And the actor is... Con- you know, you're not like cutting in between two moments. It's the same moment. So the 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 action is happening at night and during the day, and you're cutting back and forth between them. The yes, the toughest part of that was there's a shot where the camera's looking straight down, and there's a sequence where they're walking through the woods, and then we're kind of shot we're on their faces and this we're wider showing the environment, and then we cut to a shot looking straight down as Vera walks up. And then the camera starts to move down, boom down, and the light around her is transitioning. Mm-hmm. The sun is moving. The, the the ambient is getting less and less and less. And all of a sudden, it as we land down on her, on her face, it's nighttime around her. Mm. And that was a pretty fun transition to try to, to make happen. Uh, we had – I had two techno cranes. Uh, one, I had a 50-foot techno crane on 100 feet of track which I put a light on. And it's always fun to ask for a 50-foot technocrane to put a light on. You know, production's like, wait, what are you going to do? Uh, <laughs> it's a really expensive light, Michael. <laughs> exactly. So I'm like, so just on that, I was like, oh, this better work. This better work. And uh, so we put we put a big 20K up there and had uh, somebody operating the arm and pushing the base. So sweeping through the woods and booming down as though the sun was setting throughout the day. And then in the background, I had lights coming up in a dark ambient light, go, or light ambient going down and then transitioning to dark ambient and then, you know, dark, uh, you know, moonlight key hitting her. So all those lights, I think it was around a 10 second fade from light to dark, uh. which which made that happen. And it took a lot of time to prepare for that. And a lot of, uh, you know, Josh Davis, my gaffer, uh, I think really shined right there. I think he 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 brought his A game and what we talked about, yeah, he delivered. So I think uh, a very difficult uh, and scary thing to try to, to accomplish. So The Conjuring 3, The Devil Made Me Do It takes place in the 1980s. How are you approaching representing the 80s in the film? Uh, I, I think the bulk of that is done through production design and wardrobe. Uh, as far as the way we we do things, um, I think our biggest uh, contribution to that, uh, cinematography-wise, is the recipe we gave uh, the image in the DI. Uh, Shavs and I came up with this recipe of, you know, we we added some grain, a little bit of grain for texture. We did we uh, played with some halation, which is like uh, playing with the highlights, uh, softening them a bit. Um, and we, you know, we, we played to a, you know, a slightly warmer image in a lot of these scenes. And I think through those, uh, those enhanced kind of the, the production design and the costumes that kind of added, uh, and made it feel like that era. But as far as the way I, I light and stuff, I, there's, I don't really do too much. Uh, there, I didn't like use lights that were only in the eighties or, 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 you know, shoot movies how they did in the 80s i i I still try to do that that's story based more than uh decade based yeah i agree i think it showed some pretty 
good restraint too, and not having it be so like, Hey, we're in the eighties and, and making sure that you knew it at all times. I think that the warmth made it feel more tungsten lit, which mm-hmm. I think is making it feel like, you know, earlier days. Um, but, but other than that, I, I, it, it didn't beat you over the head with the time period, but there was something about it where you knew you felt that it did take place a while ago. Yeah. Cause you know, at the same time, we're still trying to make a modern movie, a movie that, that audience of today are watching and, and can relate to. So, you know, we don't want to hit it too on the head as far as, you know, uh, you know, making the image super grainy or, or, or super, you know, uh, whatever it is. Uh, we didn't want to hit it over the head like that. So we have a couple questions on Instagram um, asking basically the same thing. Will there be a fourth movie? I, that's by Sophia and Nessa 93 Alt. Both want to know what's going on. The 10th anniversary is coming up in 2023. Are there plans? What can you tell us? We'll keep it secret. I promise. I don't know if there's going to be a four or not. Uh, I do know that, you know, I, a lot of people I talk to, they wouldn't mind a fourth. Um, but I don't know what the plans are. Well, I guess that is what we is. We, we, we try, we try to get all the little nuggets that we can, but of That's course. as best as I could get by Sophia and Nessa 93 all. Sorry, but I asked, what are you going to do? <laughs> um, all right, perfect. So Sweenzy, I saw your question. We answered it. We talked about the wood scene, uh, surfing Picasso. Do you like making movies that keep people up at night? I guess the answer has got to be yes. Cause that has to be a lot of fun for you. Uh, that just means it's working. <laughs> exactly. So the answer is yes, I do. And we already asked Christopher Sousa 59's question. So thank all of you guys on Instagram for your questions. And of course, thank you, Michael Burgess. The film is called Conjuring. The Devil Made Me Do It. It's on uh, HBO Max and in theaters. Um, It seems like this whole fear that people had of HBO Max simultaneously releasing on streaming was going to hurt the theater business doesn't seem to be a problem. Your movie is just doing giant, crazy numbers right now in the theater and it was simultaneously released as well. So uh, it, it seems to be a model that works. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, you know what? No, uh, it, it's working. And I'm very happy for Shavs and everyone involved with the movie. Uh, I think it's fantastic. Um, it just goes to show that, you know, people want to go to theaters and it's a fun experience. And I hope they don't go anywhere. Uh, but, you know, it's also nice that uh, both can happen together because, I I just want people to be able to see these movies. And I think the more places they have to see them, I think it's better. It's the best. Yeah. I saw it on HBO Max just because of the convenience, but I'm absolutely going to see it this weekend in the theater because I just want to see something like this on a big screen. That's what makes it so fun and so immersive. So uh, we still make them with that intent. Absolutely. Well, congratulations on all the success of the film, and we'd love to have you back for your next project. And when you are in Boston, find us. We'd love to We'd love to see you. Well, I will do that. I will definitely do that, Ben. This was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, and to the Go Creative team, it was a fantastic experience. All right, I want to thank Michael Burgess, the director of photography for The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It for coming on the show and talking to us all about the film. Go and check it out for yourself. Like I said, it's in theaters, but it's also on HBO Max, so you can check it out right now for yourself. You guys are going to love this movie. I also want to thank Connor Crosby, 
Uh, he's the producer of our show, and you can find him at ignitionvisuals.com. And of course, Dave Siegel over at SiegelSound.com. He mixes and masters and makes the show sound fantastic. Of course, follow us on your favorite podcast app. Uh, search Go Creative Show, hit subscribe, and you will never miss an episode. And also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, uh, where you can see and hear all of our episodes. Uh, and also some exclusive content you can't get anywhere else. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. I want to thank all the great fans of ours for writing in and asking your questions. We love that. Thank you so much. And let us know what you think of this episode of Go Creative Show. Uh, put it in the notes. Put it on our website. Reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. And of course, if you're interested in what I'm doing with my production company, BC Media Productions, you can find me at Ben Consoli on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you for joining us today. And we will see you next week on another episode of the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. <laughs>